you will need a Bible this morning. Our passage is going to be James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Last week we wrapped up James 2. There are 108 verses in the book of James. I realize we finished two chapters and we have three to go, but if you actually look at the verse count, we're almost dead center in the book of James. We have half of it behind us, half of it in front of us, and so I thought this morning it would be a good time, a good place to share a video with you. I actually saw this several months back, and I wanted to share it at some point in this James series, but I wanted us to get at least halfway through before I shared it with you, and so this video reminds me of the book of James. kind of like reading James, right? You get punched in the teeth, and you get up, and you dust yourself off, and then you show up to church the next week, and you just get whacked again, right, when you least expect it. And there's more of that coming in the book of James, for sure. To connect this with what we just talked about, I'll just remind you, at the end of James 2, we were talking about faith and works, This morning, we pick up in chapter 3, and the major theme is words. Not works, but words. And the connection between chapter 2 and 3, James is saying in chapter 2, real faith is faith that works. And he picks it up in chapter 3, and he continues that thought, and he's saying, your words are part of your works. It's not just the things that you do, but it's also the things that you say. And so we're talking this morning about the tongue. I looked up a few stats this week. Uh, I found several different studies. I tried to just get a rough average. I put this on your notes. Uh, The average human speaks roughly 10,000 to 30,000, I know that's a big spread, words per day. How many of you think you speak on the low end of that? How many of you are a little bit more quiet? How many of you speak on the high end of that? Be honest. You know who you are. Yeah, some of you are way on the high end of that. Some of you can get 30,000 words into one conversation before anyone else gets one word in. You can just roll. You can go. How many of you, just honest question, I'm just curious, how many of you, if you had to guess, would say that women speak more words per day than men? If you think women speak more than men, hands are up. If you think it's dead even, there's no statistical difference. What do you think? Raise your hand. Anybody? A few. Uh, I I found several studies. Some of them say women speak twice as many words a day. And some of you ladies that I know, I would believe that. You could do that easily. Some of the studies I came across say there is no statistical difference. It just depends on the person. And some of you men that I know, I would agree with that. I think it's just a person-by-person thing. Our words are important. Whether you speak a lot of them or whether you speak a few of them, our words are important. And Jesus helps explain why our words are so important. According to Jesus, there is a direct connection between our heart and our words. There's a direct pipeline from what is in your heart to what comes out of your mouth. And Jesus puts it like this in Matthew twelve thirty four: Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever's in your heart is eventually going to come out of your mouth. You're going to tell on yourself. And if it comes out of your mouth, there's no point in using this lame excuse, this lame not real apology that you hear famous people make all the time when they say something and then they say, oh, I didn't really mean that. Jesus says, no, 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 no. If it comes out of your mouth, it's only because it started in your heart. There is a direct connection between what's in your heart and what comes out of your mouth. You need to keep that verse in mind all the way through the message this morning. James is talking to us about the tongue. The tongue, the tongue, the tongue, the words that we speak, the things that we say to other people. I just want you to keep in mind, as James talks about the tongue, he's also talking about your heart. You can't separate those two things as if they're different. I also want you to keep this in mind. When James talks about the tongue, he is talking about the words that actually come out of your vocal cords as sound waves. He's also talking about the words that you text and the words that you email. He's talking about the words that you post on social media. This is not just a talk about I need to keep my physical mouth closed. For many of us, it may be a talk about I need to take my thumbs off the smartphone. He's talking about all of the words that come out of our mouth, all of the words that we post online, all of the words that we send as a text, all of the words that we post for the entire world to hear, and all of the words that we send just to one person in that message or that text that we think no one else is going to hear. James is talking about our tongue. That brings us to the big idea, very, very simple. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, This person's religion is worthless. And if you think that's a great big idea, don't give me the credit. Give the credit to James. Because I didn't come up with that. James came up with that. If you flip in the book of James back to chapter 1, you will find in verse 26 these words. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, This person's religion is worthless. And I just want you to notice that back in James chapter 1, verse 26, he directs that statement that's like a solid right cross, he directs it to anyone, right? If anyone thinks they're a religious spiritual person, but they can't bridle their tongue, they don't bridle their tongue, they're deceiving their heart, and their religion is actually Worthless, And I bring that up because when we jump in, and we're going to read it in just a moment, James chapter 3, you'll notice that in verse 1, James starts off talking about teachers. He says, not many of you should become teachers. And there's a very small minority of Bible scholars that jump off from James 3 verse 1 where he talks about teachers and they say, all this stuff about the tongue that comes after James 3 1 where he addresses this to teachers, it's only for teachers, So if you don't teach Sunday school, if you don't preach sermons, if you don't have any sort of teaching capacity at VBS, you just get a free pass on this one. And I would refer you to the video we showed earlier, right? The wheel is coming around for you. This is not just for teachers. Everybody gets to play because back in chapter 1, James says, if anyone, anyone can't bridle their tongue, your religion is worthless. 
And even in our passage, as soon as you get past verse 1, notice what he says in verse 2. He says, we all stumble in many ways. Not just teachers, all of us. And he says, if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. He expands it right back out to anyone, to all those who claim to follow Jesus. So listen, we could have a special little study and a special little discussion about how this passage applies specifically to teachers. That would be a valuable thing to do. It's not what we're going to do this morning. This morning we're going to focus on the big picture, looking at James 1.26, looking at James addressing this to all believers, and we're going to say James is gunning for all of us, not just those of us who have the role of Sunday school teacher, but he's talking to anyone. All the words that we say, the ones that come out of your mouth, the ones you type on a keyboard, the ones you type into a smartphone, all of those things are on the table this morning when we come to James chapter 3. So follow along, we're going to read the passage James 3, 1 to 12. The Word of God says this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. That's the word of God. Let's bow and let's pray. Father, we come back to the book of James. We come humbly. Father, we just confess our sin. We know that our hearts are wicked. Father, we know that our tongues are corrupt. Father, we see ourselves in this passage even as we just read through it briefly. Father, we know that James is talking to us and our prayer this morning is that your spirit that inspired these words, would drive them home to our hearts with conviction. Father, that you would be the God who continues to give more grace as we humble ourselves in your sight, as we agree with you about who we are. Father, and as we come to you for grace and mercy through Jesus. Father, we believe that you give more grace and that gives us great hope, even as we come to a challenging, convicting passage. Father, give us wisdom. Uh, guide us in our study this morning. Help us to see hope in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Let me start off with an old story from World War II. I'll put a picture up on the screen. This is a German battleship. It was called the Bismarck. It was built in 1940. At the time, it was the biggest, baddest boat on the planet. It was made to be an absolute game changer in World War II. And uh, the interesting sort of piece of trivia about the Bismarck is that it only made one offensive mission. And that one mission was the Germans, the Nazis, sending the Bismarck out into the Atlantic with one purpose, sit right in the middle of the supply line between Great Britain and the United States, cut off all supplies going either direction, especially to to Europe, to Great Britain. Just sit there and stop any ship from coming to the islands. And the Brits figured out pretty quickly that's what they wanted to do with the Bismarck. And look, it was big enough and it was bad enough to do the job. And so Winston Churchill, he figured out what was going on and he said, we got to do something. We can't just let them cut the supply line off. He said, what do we have available? Who can make it out to, to cut off the Bismarck and to try to intercept the Bismarck in this mission? And the only ship remotely big enough and close enough was a 20-year-old British battleship called the Hood. And so Churchill said, send the Hood. You got to stop the Bismarck. Whatever it takes, you got to stop it. So the Hood takes off. It intercepts the Bismarck. They engage in a battle. It wasn't even close. I mean, it wasn't even close. Within 10 minutes of engaging in battle, the Bismarck launched a shell right into the ammunition stockpiles of the Hood, and it sank three minutes later. I mean, can you imagine? 13 minutes into the battle, the hood is completely underwater and the Bismarck is pressing on towards its goal. The Allies were desperate. The Brits were desperate. And so they said, we've got a few planes. They each carry one torpedo. Send the planes. They're close enough. They can get there by the next day. So they sent the swordfish bombers. Each swordfish bomber had a single torpedo. Look, this is World War II. This is not like highly guided GPS precision, you know, smart missiles. This was get over it and drop the thing. And these torpedoes were not all that powerful. We're not dropping nuclear bombs on the, on the Bismarck. We're just sort of hoping to slow it down. They didn't even think that they could sink it. But they had no other options, and so they sent the swordfish bombers, and one of those bombers dropped its torpedo at the right place at the right time. It didn't sink the Bismarck, but it crashed into the back of the ship and exploded right on the rudder. It did not destroy the rudder. I mean, the Bismarck was big and bad, but it did jam it 12 degrees, stuck. Bismarck was still up. All the guns worked. All the the sailors were still alive. It was still a big, tough ship, but all it could do was swim in circles. Just round and round and round and round it went. Twelve-degree circle all the way, or just kept going all the way, big circle out in the middle of the sea. And the Brits sent all the fleet that they had, and there was that big ship just spinning circles in the middle of the ocean, and they sank it, and that's where it sits today, at the bottom of the ocean. You need a rudder. Doesn't matter how big you are, doesn't matter how tough you are, how bad you are, you need a rudder. And that's what James is saying in James chapter 3. It ties in with the first point that James is making in James 3. What do we learn about the tongue from James chapter 3? The first idea is this your tongue controls the direction of your life. 
Your tongue, your words control the direction of your life. You see that idea? We just talked about with the Bismarck in verse 4. He says, look at the ships. They're so large. They're driven by strong winds, but they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. You need a rudder, and it controls the direction of the ship. He gives us another example of that. If you look at verse 4, he's talking about the ships, and you need this rudder. And then you also look at verse 3. He says, we put bits in the mouths of horses, and they obeyed us, and we guide their whole bodies as well. I read this verse. I thought about it this week. It reminded me of when Brooke and I lived in Kentucky. We had the opportunity when we lived in Louisville to go to Churchill Downs for some of the church races. We never went for the Kentucky Derby, but we went to the races on off days, and it's a beautiful building. And I had never been to horse races in my entire life. I know some of you have maybe been in Riodosa or different places. I had never been, and we walked into this place, and you can go sort of in the back area, and you can see the stables, and you can see the horses as they're walking out. And me being sort of a city slicker, I guess, just blown away at the size of those thoroughbreds. And then doubly blown away when they take off running and they ring that bell and they pull the gates at the sound of the thunder of these beasts. I mean, it's almost just like you're at a NASCAR race and you can hear this rumble rolling around the track. I I was on Facebook and I saw this picture. One of our own members, Steve Isonina, went to some races in Albuquerque recently and he was taking pictures. Steve likes to take pictures and this is one of the pictures he took. And I thought I would put it up just because it illustrates the size and the power of these animals. And we control them, James says, with a small bit. I mean, if it's you versus a horse, the horse is going to win every time. They're bigger, they're stronger, they're powerful, they're just enormously huge these thoroughbreds, but you put a bit in the mouth of that horse and you control it and you ride it wherever you want to go. And not just people like you and me ride them, but little bitty guys ride them. Little bitty tiny guys. They can control them when you put the bit in the mouth. And James brings up these two pictures, a ship with a rudder and a horse with a bit, and he says, your tongue is just like that. It controls the direction of your life. Now just be honest for a minute. If I were just to give you a pop quiz, we weren't looking at James 3, I was just to sort of ask you, what controls the direction of your life? And write down your answer and turn it in. Some of you might say, well, your decisions, the decisions you make every day, they control the direction of your life. And some of you may say, no, no, the the direction of your life is controlled by what's most important to you. Uh, Some of you may say, no, 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 your emotions control the direction of your life. Or some of you may even say your environment, how you grew up and how you were influenced, that sort of controls the direction of your life. James says it's your tongue. The things that come out of your mouth control the direction of your life. Why would he say that? I think it's because as we've seen all the way through James, James listened to Jesus. He knew the teachings of Jesus. Over and over and over again, he says things that just sound an awful lot like things Jesus said. And if we can just put back up on the screen one more time, Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says this. Can we put that verse back up? I know we're going backwards here. Put the next one up. There it is. 
out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And look, if we've seen anything in James, we've seen that he's kind of a pragmatist. He just kind of cuts to the chase and tells it like it is. And so he could have this abstract philosophical discussion about your heart and your emotions and your desires and all that stuff. But James just sort of cuts to the chase and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus told us that whatever's in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. So look, here's the, here's the bottom line. What comes out of your mouth controls the direction of your life. That's because whatever comes out of your mouth started in your heart. It didn't just come out of your mouth from nowhere. It started in your heart. And so James tells us that our tongues, our words, control the direction of our lives. That's weighty stuff. And then he says this. This is secondly, you are powerless to tame your tongue. Powerless. You can not do it. Powerless to tame your tongue. Last month, my family took a series of day trips, and one of the things we did is we went to the zoo in Abilene. How many of you have been to the zoo in Abilene? It's a pretty nice zoo. I won't tell you how much money I spent buying lettuce for the giraffes, but <laughs> they were full when we left, and it was a lot of fun. And I have a couple of observations about the zoo in Abilene. My first observation is I've been, I think, twice. I think the Abilene Zoo is the hottest place on planet Earth. I don't think any place is hotter. And maybe I just hit it on two hot days, but the best place in the Abilene Zoo is the snake house where you go inside and they have a little bit of air conditioning blowing and the lights are dim. And you go in there and all the parents with little kids are just hanging out in the snake house. And you kind of got to plan your day around the snake house. Like go look at some animals, then go back to the snake house again and chill out for a while. And back and forth you go. It's incredibly hot when we went. My second observation is... Humans build zoos. Rhinoceroses do not have human zoos. Giraffes do not have pits where they dangle bacon over for human beings to eat. And there's the giraffe shelling out the money. I want to buy more bacon to feed these people. Look at them, look at them. You don't see that. We build the zoos. We invent leashes. We make cages. We dig pits and make enclosures for animals. My goodness, we even build giant tanks at SeaWorld and we put giant fish in them. And notice what James says in James chapter 3. Look at verse 7. Every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. We're the top of the food chain. But, verse 8. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Right? Just in your mind, we're going back to Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The reason you can't tame your tongue is that you can't control your heart. You can't change your heart. You can't fix your heart. And if you think about it, this is the entire story of the Old Testament. From Genesis 3 all the way to Malachi 4. This is what the Old Testament is about. You can't change your heart. You can't tame it. It's wicked through and through. The book of Genesis tells us right out of the gates, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord looks down on human beings after corruption is spread to all of them because of Adam's sin, and he sees the, the intentions of their hearts are only 
evil continually. And that's true for everybody. And it plays out all the way through the Old Testament. God comes along and he saves his people and he gives them these rules. Do this and do this and don't do that and don't do that. They do the stuff they're not supposed to do and they don't do the stuff they're supposed to do. That's the story of the Old Testament in a nutshell. Like the rules don't fix anything because their hearts are still wicked. Listen, the greatest hope in the old covenant is that someday God would make a new covenant. Isaiah knew that better than anyone else. Do you remember the story from Isaiah 6? We talk about it all the time because it's so important to understanding God and understanding us. Isaiah sees God in all his glory and all his holiness and all his splendor. And what he says is, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of what? Un clean lips. Why does he go to the lips? Why not just go to the heart? It's because he knows what Jesus said many, many years later. Whatever comes out of your mouth started in your heart. And Isaiah could have very easily said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man who has a sinful heart. He could have said that, but he's just a little more pragmatic, and he's saying, look, you want the proof that I'm a sinful man? I can't show you my heart, but I can show you my words. You can listen to what comes out of my mouth, and it's proof that I'm corrupt through and through. The hope of the new covenant is that God would do for his people what the rules and the regulations of the old covenant were not able to do. God says to his people, in the coming days, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, and I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take out your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And until that happens, you and I are powerless, unable to tame and control our tongues because they're directly connected to our hearts. And only God can change a stony heart into a living heart. So James reminds us we're powerless to tame our tongues. Number three, your tongue has destructive power. Destructive power. Look at verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. I don't know if you've ever visited a place where a forest fire has raged through an area. But the destruction can almost take your breath away. And James is reminding us it just starts with a, little, with a spark, with a small fire. And it's just destructive. You may not have any intention of destroying all the things that you destroy, but fire can do that, and your words are the same. James says in verse 6, just so we don't miss it, right? Connect the dots. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It's set on fire the entire course of life. Excuse me, it's set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The tongue is a fire. You've seen the videos that come out in the, the holiday season. Somebody told me that Walmart already has Christmas decorations out. So here we go with Christmas. You've seen the Christmas videos where a Christmas tree catches on fire in somebody's living room and it goes up in two seconds and the whole living room is destroyed and the house is just left in rubble. James is trying to get our attention. He's saying, look, your tongue is like a fire. You may have the best of intentions. You may think that you can control that fire. You may think that nobody else is going to hear what comes out of your mouth. You may think it's not that big a deal, but you have no idea the kind of destruction that you can unleash when you open your mouth. 
your words can destroy. Husbands and wives, the things that you say to your spouse can destroy your marriage. You may not have that intent, but your words can be destructive. Think about the people that you work with and the people that you go to school with. The things that you say to those people can bring destruction into, your, into their lives. We have the, the silly nonsense about sticks and stones may break my bones and words will never hurt me. And James says that's an absolute bunch of baloney. Your words can destroy people. Parents, the things that you say to your kids can destroy your kids. can crush your kids. Young people, the things that you text and the things that you message, the things that, not just young people, old people, the things that you think you're only sending to one person can destroy relationships, can destroy reputations, yours included. James says your tongue has destructive power. That could be words that you're just screaming and yelling in some sort of outburst. It could be words that you say to somebody with a roll of the eyes and a sarcastic tone in your voice. It could be words that you say out loud or words that you type with your thumbs and send in a message. James says your words can destroy. Number four. Your tongue should not serve two masters. Look at verse 11 and 12. He talks about a spring. And he says, look, if you find a spring, it's either going to have fresh water or salt water, but it's not going to have both. You get one. What's in the source is what's going to come out. You're not going to find both. Don't expect to find both. If you have a fig tree, don't look for olives on the fig tree. Don't look for grapes, right? Whatever kind of tree it is, whatever's on the inside is what's going to come out. Your tongue should not serve two masters. Look at verse 10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. The tongue that you use to come into this room on Sunday morning and sing 10,000 reasons, bless the Lord should not be used in about 45 minutes to gripe about your waitress or your waiter at lunch. James says it shouldn't be that way. You just sat in this room and you used that tongue to praise God. Now you're going to go and use the exact same tongue to run somebody down who's made, James says, in the likeness of God, verse 9. We're blessing our Lord and we curse people made in the likeness of God. How can those two things go together? The tongue that you would use so carefully in certain company, but so loosely when you get on social media. James says it shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't be so careful in one realm and so loose in the other realm that you just lose all filter in regard for human beings. Why would you do that? It shouldn't be that way, he says. The tongue that you use to pray before your Sunday lunch should not then be used during lunch to gossip about the person in your Sunday school class that really gets on your nerves. I know they get on your nerves. James says it shouldn't be that way, though. You shouldn't find figs on a grapevine. You shouldn't find people spending their Sunday morning blessing God with their tongue and then turning around and running human beings 
into the ground. Your tongue should not serve two masters. Look, earlier in the book of James, we saw an idea. And the idea that James set before us is that the word of God is like a mirror. When you come to the Word of God, whether it's the book of James or any other book in the Bible, you read the Word of God, it's like you're looking in the mirror and it exposes you. It shows you and it tells you what God is like, but it also shows you and tells you what you're like. And when you read through a passage like this, on some level, you ought to look in the mirror and say, it's like he's talking about me. And James says one of the greatest dangers in your life, one of the greatest dangers, it's not that they might not let you pray in school, it's not that they might make you take a cross off the wall, it's not that they might not let you put the Ten Commandments. He doesn't, he doesn't warn us about any of those things. Here's what he says. Here's a great danger that you need to be aware of, is that you come to the Word of God and you see yourself in it and then you walk away and you forget what you saw. He says, don't be like the person who looks in the mirror and they see their face and they walk away and they just forget it completely. Don't be the person that sits in here on a Sunday morning, listens to the word of God and thinks, man, this is good stuff. This is challenging stuff. This is convicting stuff. And then you just put it in the back of your mind and you move through the rest of the week. So to that end, let's end with application. Just a couple of thoughts. How do we apply James 3? Number one, admit that God's demands for holiness include our tongue. When God demands holiness of his people, it includes the things that come out of our mouth. Don't let yourself off the hook by saying, well, it's not like I murdered anybody. Well, it's not like I robbed a bank. Well, it's not like I'm hurting children or young, you know, young people. It's just words. James says, no, no, no. It's not just words. It's words. And God's demands for holiness include the things that come out of your mouth. Number two, acknowledge that God is not satisfied with our aspirations. Look, it's one thing to come in here, listen, fill in all the blanks, maybe even add a few extra notes or you underline a verse in your Bible. You think, oh, man, this is me and I need to do better. And you have all these thoughts about it. And then you get to fill in the last blank, which I haven't given you yet, but I'm going to give it to you in a minute. And you fill in the last one. You fold it up. You close it up. You say, okay, we've got to get through one more song, one more song. I hope they don't sing it five times, just one more song. And then he's going to make some announcements. I can read the bulletin. I don't need him to make the announcements. So I'll just, I'm, going to, I'm going to be here for the announcements. And then we finally get, we're going to pray for some people at the end. Okay, we're going to pray for those people. Then we're going to get out of here. Then we're going to go to Rosa's. Can we go to Rosa's already? And what started 15, 20 minutes earlier as conviction just sort of goes away. Your spiritual aspirations that never leave this room mean nothing. The things that you think about and wrestle about in this room while we're looking into the Word of God and seeing ourselves in it like it's a mirror, if it doesn't translate past that doorway, it's worthless. Doesn't threaten the enemy, doesn't make you more like Jesus, it's completely worthless. Especially on an issue like this where we can all walk out the door and go to lunch and we can all feel pretty good about ourselves because we're good, moral, upstanding, right people. We don't do things that the world thinks are really, really bad. We're not going to go out and do things that our other church members think are really, really bad. It's 
easy to just walk out, forget what we look like, and leave our aspirations right here in the seat you're sitting in. That's worthless. Number three, accept the grace that not only forgives, but also changes. Accept God's grace that not only forgives, but also changes. Look what we read in James 4, 6. We come back to it every week. But God gives more grace. Listen, there is grace available. If you sat here this morning and you've been honest with yourself about what James says about the tongue, the only conclusion that you can draw is, I'm exactly like Isaiah. I'm in big trouble because I'm a person of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people who also have unclean lips. And my eyes have now seen the king. I've seen God in his holiness. I've seen me and my sinfulness. Woe is me for I am lost. That's the only conclusion that you can draw. And James would remind us, God gives grace. He gives grace. Isaiah got a a glimpse of this, a preview of this, when the Lord said to him, your sin is taken away. Your iniquity has been atoned for. There's atonement in Jesus. He lived a life of obedience, including the words that he spoke. And he died on the cross for our transgressions. Not just for our sins, not just for our, our cuss words or the things that we say that are bad, but for our wicked, sinful, stony hearts. He did that while we were sinners. He sent his spirit to give us life and new birth and regeneration while we were spiritually dead. There's grace to be found in Jesus. And good news, James 4, 6, he gives more grace. It's not like you get a one-shot dose and you better not mess it up. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. Not to the proud, not to the people who think they've got it all put together, but to the humble. To the people that come to God's word and they see themselves and they say, man, God's greater than I ever imagined and I'm worse than I ever dreamed. He gives more grace. Not only grace that forgives, but also grace that changes. That's the hope of the new covenant. That God would come and do a work inside his people so that all those rules and regulations that they were never able to keep, they would suddenly be able to keep. Not because they put it all together, but because God's grace saved them and God's grace changed them. I want you to bow. We're going to pray.